You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I remember freaking out on the inside, but, you know, I didn't want my wife to see that I was freaking out. This is Aaron Cornejo. Back in August, his wife Yvette gave birth to their third child, Matthew. Her first two deliveries were easy, but Matthew was really different. They were unsure whether he was going to come out head down or head up. There was a chance that baby Matthew's shoulders were going to be crushed in delivery. Nurses had to go in and intervene. The labor was really long and extremely painful. Luckily, the nurse was able to turn him around. Matthew was fine. You know, the only concerns were my wife after that. Yvette was still in a fair amount of pain, but it didn't seem totally out of the ordinary. She had just given birth with a really difficult labor. Things generally seemed okay. So Aaron went home to get the two other boys to meet their new baby brother. He bundled them into the car, started driving back to the hospital. Aaron, at that point, he thought everything was fine. He wasn't going to rush. He actually stopped to grab the kids a bite to eat. And that's when when my wife called and said, hey, you know, I need you to get back. Something had gone really wrong. Aaron took the kids, rushed them back home to their grandmother, and raced to the hospital. The main nurse was the one that told us that, that my wife had hemorrhaged. Hemorrhaged. As in, Yvette was losing a dangerous amount of blood. The nurse told Aaron his wife was going into surgery. She took him to a waiting room. And he stayed there for three hours. For most of that time, he was alone, just pacing back and forth. Then he went to visit baby Matthew in the nursery. He was hoping that would calm him down a bit, but his mind was still racing. It's a million thoughts and emotions coming at you. Is she going to be okay? How is this going to affect the boys? I, 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 at one point, I, I mean, I, the idea of like, oh my God, you know, I may have to raise kids, three kids. It's okay. Aaron does not have to raise three kids alone. Yvette is fine, and after a terrible, terrible wait, Aaron was allowed to see her. I saw her face, and I saw her joking with me. I'm like, all right, she's back, and she's going to be okay. She had facial expressions. She had her smile. She has a smile that, that since the first day has won me over. But it turns out that Yvette and Aaron were really lucky. 
Yes, they had a terrifying birth experience, but they had that experience in California. And when it comes to taking care of women giving birth, California does way better than anywhere else in the United States. You are three times less likely to die giving birth in California than in the rest of the country. This is The Impact, a show on the Vox Media Podcast Network about the ways that policy affects real lives. Today, we'll look at why the United States has an astoundingly high maternal death rate. Our maternal death rate, it is three times higher than the United Kingdom. It's eight times higher than Norway or Sweden. We're going to explore the policy decisions that made our problem a lot worse. And then we will take a trip out to California. We are going to see what happened when that state decided it just wasn't acceptable for lots and lots of women to be bleeding to death in childbirth. My colleague Julia Belouz has written a lot about this issue. She actually reported out this story we're about to tell you. So we brought her into the studio to lay out the problem. Hi, Julia. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to start with just a big version of this question. What is happening with maternal health in the United States right now? So I think the best way to think about it is probably using something we love at Vox, the graph. I know it's not great for podcasts, but there's a really simple one, I think, that could help us understand the problem. If you flash back to 1990, you see the U.S. looks a lot like its peer countries. We're doing better than Germany and Japan, but we're doing a little worse than Sweden and Australia. So we look normal. So we look pretty normal. We're not, we're not an outlier in any way. But then you flash forward 30 years to today and you see all the other countries have done a lot better at making birth safer for moms, but the U.S. is this outlier in that we've actually seen a big increase in the maternal death rate, a doubling over the last 30 years. Wow. So it's not just everyone else has gotten better and we've stayed the same. It's everyone else has gotten better and we've gotten significantly worse. Exactly. We're in the company of places like Zimbabwe and North Korea. What has gone wrong in the United States? What have you learned in your reporting that explains why our maternal death rate is so high? When I started poking around on this, a lot of people pin the blame on moms. They say, you know, moms are more obese now. We have more chronic diseases when we give birth. We're delaying our first childbirth until older ages. And all those things make childbirth more complicated and dangerous. But it becomes clear very quickly that many other countries have seen the same trends. They've seen rises in obesity. They've seen, you know, rises in the age of moms. So what's different about us? I think it really comes down to the policy decisions we've made here and the fact that we just haven't prioritized maternal health in the way other countries have. One of the things that comes up a lot is that we don't even track maternal deaths at the federal level. We don't have, in many states, maternal mortality review boards groups of doctors and public health people who go over every death and they try to understand what caused this and what can we do to prevent it in the future. So many states don't have that, but in contrast, California does. And that's where their whole initiative started. They started to look at what's causing these moms to die and can we build systems around making birth safer for them. We decided to head out to California. We wanted to see these systems firsthand. We went to St. Joseph's Hospital of Orange. 
that is in the city of Orange in Southern California. For a city, though, it is pretty tiny. There are lots and lots of antique stores and, no shocker, lots of orange trees. St. Joseph's is a big, sprawling medical complex right near the downtown area, and Dr. David LeGrew is an OBGYN there. We wanted to talk to him because he has been working to reduce maternal deaths since the 1980s. He's got short gray hair, a big, easy grin, and a seemingly endless supply of quotes and anecdotes to illustrate any point. There's stuff from Lord, Lord Kelvin, Kelvin the, the great British mathematician said from the, Albert, Albert Einstein, Einstein quote of, you know, it's insanity to keep doing the same thing. And, and the occasional result. scientific concept. Um, that's thermodynamics, right? And so but just when we asked him how he got interested in keeping women alive in childbirth, he got focused. <sighs> we had a mother who had had a placenta that had attached itself and and essentially eaten through the wall of the uterus is the best way to describe it. This was back in his fellowship days, three decades ago. But the memory is still vivid. I still remember the details. I still remember the room. I still remember the really large, ugly, purple blood vessels on the surface of the uterus. And, And I remember walking into the room and looking over, looking at this vision of this and going, wow, this is not going to be good. It was not good. In fact, it was tragic. The mother died, and that is always hard. But Dr. LeGrew told us it was especially tough because it was right at the beginning of his career. And so to be involved with something that, you know, was that horrific and that poor an outcome stirred the interest in the, hey, what can we do different? What did we do wrong? He's been trying to answer those questions ever since. To do so, he started wading through lots of research. It's a process he's repeated many times over the last few decades. Dr. LeGrew reads through studies. He looks at internal hospital numbers. He wants to know what isn't working and how to fix it. The first time he did this, one particular study caught his eye. It suggested that moms who had multiple C-sections had more complicated pregnancies. To Dr. LeGrew, this study was a clear directive. He had to bring down the C-section rate in his hospital. That was easier said than done. He instituted system-level changes, technical stuff to do with dilation and scheduling, But Dr. LeGrew also wound up doing a lot of diplomacy. He remembers that doctors always felt the high C-section rate. That was somebody else's problem. You'd walk into the doctor's dining room and everybody would be complaining about somebody else who did a C-section they didn't have to do. And what you quickly realize is, wait a second, if, if everybody's having that conversation, that means we're all doing it. So Dr. LeGrew decided to get the data together and show these doctors what their own numbers really were. He'd tally up all the C-sections that a doctor had done. Then he'd call the doctor into his office to talk about bringing that number down. And you can imagine people would come back in and say, wait a second, I didn't do this C-section right here. 
So then the conversation is, well, okay, so that's that one or these two or three. What about the other 60 C-sections? It took time, but doctors had to confront their own high C-section rates. And eventually those numbers, they did go down. Fewer moms died of complications as a result. We changed the culture. But by the early 2000s, pregnant women were coming in with more health issues. This was in California, but also all across the country. We saw moms who were older, meaning that they had more difficult labors. Obesity was a more frequent problem, and so was diabetes. I guess what I'm saying is all of a sudden we had these higher risk things. And then, of course, the maternal mortality rate was increasing. The number of women who died in pregnancy. And that's when CMQCC formed. It's kind of a mouthful, so let me repeat it. CMQCC. It stands for the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. It was founded by two doctors who, much like Dr. LeGrew, recognized that maternal health care in California was in dire need of improvement. They went all around the state looking for people who might be interested in joining. Since Dr. LeGrew already had a track record with this stuff, he jumped on board for the first meeting. This was back in 2006. The setting was not very exciting. They met in a Los Angeles hospital right by the airport. It was a typically dull office scene with conference rooms and whiteboards, but the plans they were making were dramatic. One of the exercises we did is, okay, what will the headlines be five years from now? So one of the groups had a headline that says, California maternal mortality rates are now half of what they were within five years. And I remember when we're sitting around, you know, everybody going, well, yeah, like we can do that. But they did do it. In 2006, the number of women who died giving birth in California was almost 17 for every 100,000 births. Five years after that first meeting, the number was down to 7.4. From 17 to 7.4 in five years. The maternal death rate had fallen by more than half. And remember, this was while the national rate was still climbing. There was never a headline that literally read, California maternal mortality rates are now half of what they were five years ago. But otherwise, the committee's wildest dreams They came true. So how did they do it? They started with a list of the biggest culprits. When you look at moms dying from pregnancy, there are certain things like hemorrhage. Like high blood pressure. Like infection. Like blood clots. They looked at this whole list and they said, okay, Which of these should we start with? What is one of the biggest, most preventable offenders? And that's how we focused first on hemorrhage. The CMQCC doctors read through lots and lots of studies. They pulled together all the science on the best possible ways to stop women from bleeding to death in childbirth. And then... They built a hemorrhage toolkit. 
It is a toolkit that can be replicated in a tiny rural hospital or a massive urban one. The toolkit has actual physical tools, like a cart full of hemorrhage gear. But it also has theoretical tools, like a step-by-step -step guide walking doctors through how to care for massive blood loss. Dr. LeGroux calls it an algorithm, which is basically a fancy way of saying a series of steps. The team comes in, they use the same drugs in the same order in the same fashion. When doctors follow the algorithm, they can be sure that they're using scientifically tested methods. No one is wasting time trying to guess what treatments or drugs a doctor will want to use. So the nurse doesn't have to walk in the room and see, well, Dr. Smith likes to use drug A, Dr. Jones drug B, Dr. Perez drug C. If you did that, a lot of people die because you delay. After the break, we'll show you how that toolkit works in real life. We'll take you back to Yvette, the mom you met at the beginning of the show. And we'll show you how this toolkit, it helped keep her alive. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of PropG Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Impact. A quick warning, we're going to talk about hemorrhage in some detail. If you don't like graphic material, you might want to skip forward a little bit. Before the break, we told you about a group of doctors who put together a toolkit to prevent women from bleeding to death in childbirth. It has been taken up by hospitals all across California. St. Joseph's of Orange, where Dr. LeGrew works, is one of those hospitals. Allison Navarro has been a nurse there for 13 years. She works in the postpartum and nursery wards. Okay, so let me go back in my head. Allison was Yvette Cornejo's nurse after Yvette delivered. They both told us their memories of the hemorrhage. And you're going to hear them both use a term a lot, cc's. It stands for cubic centimeter. It's a unit that doctors use to measure liquids. To help you visualize, there are about 200 cc's in one cup. But let's start with Yvette getting into the ward. All births involve some amount of blood, so a nurse had put her into padded underwear. I'm lying in a bed in agonizing pain, and I just want to, like, curl up in a ball and just hold my stomach. She was grimacing. She had her eyes shut really, really tight. And then she checked me, and she was like, okay, you passed a blood clot. A clump of blood that just sticks together. I weighed that, and I noted, like, that it was the size of a ping pong ball. And then I passed, like, a massive about of blood clots after that. At one point, she was telling us that she felt like she had to push. She felt like something was coming out. And as we looked, she pushed a clot out that was about 600 cc's worth of blood. So she checked me again. She was like, oh, my God, okay. And then maybe 15 minutes later, I was sitting there with her, and she's like, I feel like I have to push something else out. And that's when we got the 900 cc loss. They were taking each pad to the scale. 
to weigh it to see how much blood I was losing. Okay, let's pause here for a second. This weighing that they're talking about, it is one of the key features of the hemorrhage toolkit. To understand how it became so crucial, you have to go back to Dr. LeGrew and the CMQCC. That's the collaborative of doctors working on maternal health. They had developed all these stages for hemorrhage care. If there was just a little bleeding, a nurse like Allison could stop it with IV fluids. But if there was a lot of blood loss, the patient would be moved into surgery. Okay, we're going to have this staged response to hemorrhage. How do we know when to change stages? Knowing when was key. Dr. LeGrew had seen what happened if you left it up to doctors to decide whether a hemorrhage was serious. There was delay and denial. We didn't respond soon enough, so once people start bleeding to death, they get into this downward spiral where it just gets worse and worse and worse. The CMQCC wanted some kind of objective measure that would let nurses and doctors know, okay, this is the bright red line between a small hemorrhage and a big one. When you cross this line, you need to take the next step. And that line, they said, was blood loss. Between 500 cc's and 1,000, that's a stage one hemorrhage. Between 1,000 and 1,500 cc's, stage two, and so on. But then they realized doctors and nurses didn't have a good way to measure blood loss in real time. There were a number of different techniques that people had come up with. Our current method was just to eyeball and say 750 cc's. <laughs> the CMQCC said guesstimation is not going to cut it. Nurses and doctors are going to weigh the blood. That way they have an exact number and they know what to do next. That's what Allison and her fellow nurses were doing with Yvette's pads. They were weighing the blood. The amount of blood loss told Allison what steps to follow, giving Yvette drugs to control the bleeding and the pain. But then Yvette's blood loss got so high that it triggered the next step in the algorithm. Yvette remembers the nurses calling in a doctor. So then they quickly brought in the laborist who actually delivered the baby. They just said, she needs to be rushed into surgery right now. They took me in and then they laid me back down. I think I lost all feeling in my legs, so I don't even know what exactly was taking place down there. Basically, the doctor just went in vaginally and kind of cleaned her out internally, cleaned out her uterus, make sure that all the blood, the clots, if there was any retained placenta, that everything was clear. And I did hear the doctor at the end of the surgery say, if this doesn't work, then something, something. But I couldn't, I didn't hear what the last part was. And I was like, oh God, I hope this worked. It did work. Yvette was fine. We talked to her about two weeks after giving birth and she was in really good glowing health. Baby Matthew is safe. He has an adorable head, just full of thick black hair. This is baby Matthew. He's like I said, about 12 days old. Normally babies don't have that much hair, I feel like. All three of my kids, all three of the boys came out with a lot of hair. I wanted to know what would happen if the surgery hadn't worked. 
What was the next step laid out in the hemorrhage toolkit? We asked Allison, the nurse. This is a couple steps beyond the parts of the toolkit she's usually involved in, so she had to check. I've been looking at the algorithm and I don't really see anything. Actually, that's not true. Yeah, it says here um, the final would be to go to interventional radiology for embolization. So that is all here. Yvette's care was by the algorithm, a step-by-step walkthrough. Allison can consult it to figure out the later steps of care. But for the earliest steps, the ones she's normally involved with, she doesn't need to look at the book anymore. I kind of think to myself, well, I don't, I don't go by steps. Like, I just do what I'm supposed to do, what I was trained to do. Exactly what we do is what each step of the algorithm is. We just do it without really thinking about it. This is not what it was like when Allison first started working as a nurse 13 years ago. This was before the CMQCC toolkits. It was back when twice as many California moms died in childbirth. For Allison's first hemorrhage, she had no algorithm to guide her. I just had to figure it out. I called for help and I kind of stood back and I watched because I, I didn't know what else to do. One of the other key changes she's noticed is also part of the toolkit. We have our hemorrhage cart that we put together that we bring into every room whenever there's a hemorrhage. This is a little gray cart with red drawers, red for blood. It has a scale to weigh the blood. It has a calculator so you can add up blood loss. It has tubes and vials and bandages and pads. Everything we need for any hemorrhage that a doctor would need, that a nurse would need, is in those drawers. Allison says before they got the toolkit, nurses were running around the hospital looking for these tools. Oh, goodness. Some things we don't keep on mother-baby, so we'd have to run down two flights of stairs to labor and delivery. Some things were in the nursery. Some things were in the clean utility room. Some things were in the med room. She'd send a nurse running out looking for gauze. The nurse comes back and I needed the catheter, and then she had to run all the way back and get the catheter. If you heard our episode on central line infections, it's the second one in this season. This cart and even the checklist, they might sound familiar. And you're right, the central line cart is very similar to the hemorrhage cart because it is an idea that makes so much sense. Every doctor in the hospital is using the same tools and the same techniques. Every detail is thought through ahead of time. So there are fewer spur of the moment decisions. The result is that more California moms, moms like Yvette, survive childbirth. The Hemorrhage Toolkit has been a huge success in California. The CMQCC has actually gone on to make similar toolkits for other causes of maternal death, preeclampsia, blood clots. These toolkits have reduced maternal deaths all across the state. But it's just one state. In the rest of the country, some medical staffs aren't as rigorously trained. Some doctors are still eyeballing blood loss. Some nurses are still running around looking for tools that could be stored in a single cart. So now what I'm hoping is to see these things implemented in every delivery suite in the country. The CMQCC is still focused on California, but they are trying to make their toolkits available to anyone who might be interested. Dr. LeGrew, he wants nationwide education. He wants federal regulations that spread the toolkits further. 
to quote a politician on this, it takes a village. He knows it would be a huge undertaking, but it kind of reminds him of that first committee meeting where these doctors mapped out really ambitious headlines for the future. He can imagine a headline for 2022. The U.S. maternal mortality is half what it was five years ago. Okay. How's that? Remember, the number of women dying in childbirth, it is rising in the United States. But Dr. LeGrew, he thinks it can drop by a lot in just five years. Is that realistic? I brought my colleague Julia back into the studio to ask her. So what do you think of this idea? Could we cut the maternal mortality rate in half over the next five years? I guess I'm, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic about it. So on the optimistic side, I left California really feeling inspired. I saw this place that they acknowledged there was a problem. They took the time to understand its causes and they built solutions around them. We're talking about this nonprofit collective of doctors, nurses, and midwives. It's not like a fancy new expensive pill. It's just people. Toolkits. Toolkits sound fancy, but they're just pieces of paper, printouts of guidelines. California is an example of when you use data to really understand a problem and build solutions around its root causes, you can see an impact. But I'm pessimistic because of the U.S. policy environment around moms and maternal health here in the U.S. I think the U.S. is really exceptional in a bad way, in two ways. So one is that we don't have universal health care here. We're the only developed country in the world that's made the decision not to give our citizens access to universal coverage. And in the context of pregnancy and childbirth, that means that if, if you're a low-income mom, you might get Medicaid while you're pregnant and have it for a short period after you've given birth, but then you're kicked off the program. And we should acknowledge California expanded Medicaid so moms there wouldn't be in that position, but there are still something like 30 other states that haven't. Right. It's very split right now. If you live in the South, for example, and you are a low-income mom who gives birth, you're probably not going to have insurance afterwards. Exactly. Yep. How else are we exceptionally bad? <laughs> So other countries have national maternity leave policies. We don't have that here. So that means women are at the whim of their employers. And whatever policy their employer wants to set around how much time they're going to have to care for themselves during their pregnancy and then after they've given birth. And one thing maybe we should be clear about up front is that maternal death is defined as a death that happens during pregnancy because of pregnancy-related complications and 42 days after childbirth. So that is a critical time. You know, after you've given birth, you're in a vulnerable state and you do need access to health care. If you're a mom here who maybe wants to go to the doctor because you're not feeling well a few weeks after you've given birth, you might not be able to because you have to be back at your job. Where does that leave us? I, I go back to Dr. LeGru's prediction about this headline. If we have these policies that don't prioritize women, can we reduce our maternal mortality rate? I think California is a unique place in that they did make a decision that it's not inevitable that some moms will die in childbirth. This is a preventable health issue. And until we see other places take that on, then unfortunately, this is going to continue to be this unique American tragedy. The Impact's producer is Bird Pinkerton. Our senior producer is Jillian Weinberger. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. We had engineering and mixing help from Peter Leonard and Pedro Alvira. Our theme music is by Miles Ewell. We also had music in this episode from Chris Zabriskie. 
Julie Bogan manages our social media, and The Impact was co-created by myself, Sarah Cliff, and Liz Shelton's. So we, unfortunately, we are at the end of the first season of The Impact. This show has run for eight episodes. It has been a joy to host. And now we want to hear about your experience. We want to know, do you want to hear a second season of The Impact? And what should we cover? One idea we've been toying around with internally is looking at different policy experiments in cities and states. If you know of an interesting experiment, send us a note. If you are someone who's interested in sponsoring another season of The Impact, send us an email as well. You can always reach us at impact at vox.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. And thank you so much for listening. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.